Welcome to the Extra Podcast. This is Jeff Buckdom. I am here with my friend, Graham Nickel, who is one of the elders of our church. You are very happy to be here, Graham. Yes, I am very yeah, happy to very be here. Very happy to be here. <laughs> right, this is part of uh, this is one of the podcasts that we've been trying to do, uh, interviewing different people from different walks of life. I think I called it the Nobody's Podcast the last time because it has to deal with people who might, in the world's eyes, be nobodies. But I think there's somebody. But a, in this case, Graham, you're kind of a somebody. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> Great. You are, uh, we're, I just want to talk to you about kind of where you're from and ultimately get to talk to you about the interface between Christianity and a secular culture and how Christians, faithful Christians, should be living in a secular culture like ours. Right. Um, is, you are from Kamloops. Did you, you, you grew up in Kamloops in a big family. Well, yeah, I, I did grow up in Kamloops. I'm the oldest of three brothers. My folks are both Valley uh, born and raised, but they decided... Does that mean Abbotsford born and raised? Pretty much. Okay, Ab- Valley for you is Abbotsford. Yeah, Abbotsford, out to Yarrow, okay. et cetera. <laughs> that's, the, that's the valley. That's the valley. Okay. Uh, yeah, they moved up there in the early 70s, and I was born there. My two brothers born there, and I graduated high school, did a year of community college, Caribou college caribou now was caribou college that thompson rivers university now it is now tru okay yeah and then came here uh we all moved back uh, basically and you started to, when you moved here how old were you when we moved here so i was 19 19 years old you have uh two brothers i have two younger brothers clayton and joel okay yeah one of them's taller than you and the other one's not right but all very tall men uh yeah if you catch us as a family standing all in a row we take the back row because really it would be unfair to <laughs> for, just to stand in front of anyone it would be it would not be How you would, what are you six eight six seven i usually say six seven. Oh, because you don't want to make people feel bad <laughs> that's right so your whole family though moved out to this area and immediately started attending northview you came from a small church in kamloops and then you came here to northview was yeah pretty much um what year are we talking about here so 1990, summer of 1990, I came to work for Athletes in Action, basketball, 6-7. And uh, I came maybe um, six weeks before my family moved down. And in that six weeks, I met some folks through AIA who said, oh, you should check out this church, Northview. It's super cool. So I have the distinction of being the first one in my family to come to Northview. Was it super cool? Uh, it was pretty cool. It was uh, unlike my very small Church in Kamloops, certainly, where, I in, don't know. In what ways was it unlike the, your very small church in Kamloops? Well, size, certainly. Uh, but also, there was um, uh, a kind of modern vibe. Um, there were no hymn books, hmm. for example. Um, they had recently been taken out of the pews and put in a room somewhere. Back then, it was Wayne Lowen leading worship on guitar, which, in the early 90s, was a pretty innovative thing. It's not like no one was doing it, but for a church as established as Northview to be all worship, all modern worship, guitar, drums, bass, the whole nine yards, all the time, no hymn books, was pretty distinctive. Wow. Yeah, it was... Uh, on how, the, how many people attended then, do you think, back in 1990? Was that... Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, thousands. Wow. It was a like the... Man, the sanctuary... The main worship center was half the size that it was, that it is now. Um, some people remember when we doubled the pie 
kind of shape. So it became the kind of, you probably recognize how weird it is to preach in a full 180 room. Yeah, it's not the kind of design that you would, <laughs> you would sit down and think up. Uh, right. let's, what's the best way to communicate with people? Right. Uh, yeah. So I don't know exactly. It might have been 2,000, 2,500 people. Okay. Yeah. So quite a few people. And you were part of this part of this church, and you got involved with uh, the Roaring Twenties, which was has gone down in Northview folklore as a, as a legendary group of young adults. It was quite something. Uh, I was at Columbia Bible College during those years, but uh, my roommate uh, was Daryl Crop. We uh, met each other that year. He's an elder as well. Yes. So the power play has been completed. Yeah, the two of you it began as nineteen-year-olds <laughs> in the CBC dorm room. <laughs> uh, he was the one who. Uh, he was only at CBC for a couple of years, so he was more involved in the local church. I sang in the choir and uh, local church life was a little bit diminished because we were all over the place. But by the time I graduated from CBC, then Roaring Twenties was really hitting its full steam. Dave Curry was here, changed the name. And uh, yeah, it was pretty, it's kind of a unique phenomenon. Hundreds at, at its high point, there were hundreds of people coming out on a Wednesday night. When you look back at those days in the 90s and Northview... Yeah. Uh, give me some of your favorite memories. <laughs> uh, this is going to sound weird. Uh, one of the standout memories from Roaring Twenties uh, is was chicken bowling. What? Uh, that's uh, Which, Super Dave Berg. Yeah. Uh, was you know he was already a, a man of many tools and talents. Dave and, Berg is one of our. He's on our staff now. Is one of our facility directors. Yeah. So. And someone had the idea that we set it a tarp on the stage and set up bowling pins. And instead of balls, we took frozen chickens and Dave brought up a drill and a, like a one inch wing blade and just drilled holes out of the backs of these chickens. <laughs> and then we, you would bowl with them. And it you stuck your fingers inside in the frozen raw the chicken frozen raw chickens breast. Yeah, and and then you hurled these frozen chickens. It had a sort of Gallagher esque vibe to it. <laughs> wow, that's a dated reference. That's good. <laughs> yes, thank you. And is that, so that's that was the high point, right? There, right well, there. No, come on, this was very spiritual. There's wonderful <laughs> moments of meeting with the Lord and each other. But it was a, that's really a memorable one. That's great. Yeah, met my wife there. I was going to say you met your wife, uh, whose name is Sharon, and uh, that was the beginning of before you had the number of kids you have four. I do have four. Four children, yeah. and the oldest is just graduating from. Yep. Yeah, oldest just graduated high school and uh, is up at Stillwood Camp. Oh, good. Making movies. And the youngest is how old? Youngest is nine. Okay, so that's a big big gap. Yeah, it's sort of the older two, and then there's a three and a half year gap, and then the younger two. That's great. The bigs and the littles. Yeah. And you are, what, what do you do for a living? So I'm a high school teacher. I teach at MEI. I've been there since officially since 2001 full-time, but I started subbing there and teaching quite a bit since about 98. So I know I've met a lot of MEI grads over the years. Wow. Like you've, that's a long, you've been like coming on 20 years. 20 years from when I started subbing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's interesting. Do people, do students come back now and Mr. Nickel? Yeah. I get they still little... call you Mr. Nickel, even though they're 30 something years old. You'd be surprised actually. Like ask John Giesbrecht or Greg Harris or these guys who work here, they all yeah. call you Mr. Do they, they have a hard yeah. time calling you Graham? You know, kid, the, the kids, um, the name that kids came up with was G-Nick, which is like somewhere between formal, but not exactly formal. You, so you're that teacher. You're that cool teacher that they came up with a, a trendy name for. 
Um, exactly. As opposed to Mr. Whatever, Mr. Born. Right. That's good. No, people do still call me Mr. Nickel. It's quite funny for them to get over that in adulthood. Yeah, it is. Well, to eventually see themselves as your peer. Yeah, exactly. I don't uh, think Greg calls me Mr. Nickel anymore. No, I don't think he does either. <laughs> I've heard I've heard him call you things, and that's never been one of the ones I've heard him. I, I can imagine. <laughs> so you've you've been involved at the church for lots and lots of years. You are currently an elder. This is your kind of second go around as an elder of Northview. Yeah, you were an elder early on. Yeah, uh, I was an elder quite early on. Uh, I think uh, right about that same time, about 98. Wow. And then you, you were around for some difficult days of Northview. Yeah. They're uh, probably the second half of my first term there in the early 2000s. Yeah, there were some challenges for sure. People let go and congregational responses. And I was young, uh, but still uh, on the elder board and had to kind of wear those decisions like anyone else. And so. they took so you took a break from it for a while. I did. Yeah, that, those were the days of the pastorate. Um, so whatever we've called our community groups, that was I think the <laughs> seventh iteration. Now we're on fourteen or what? Yeah, we're just going to keep calling them something new. Yeah. Uh, so at the time, pastorates was kind of all the rage, and we met with some former Roaring Twenties people. We'd led care groups and other things before, but this was a bit unique. So we took over kind of the teaching role. And, um, uh, that was really fun. That group really grew and thrived. I think you, I, it was uh, the first time that I ever met you. Yeah. I remember was that. when I came to one of your pastors. I actually came here as the young adults pastor, as you remember. Right. And I, um, I was told that I was in charge of these different pastorates in communicating with them and just seeing how they were doing. And, uh, yours was one of them. And I talked to you on the telephone and you, you thought you said to me, so you've been, I, I was waiting for this phone call that somebody from the church would be sent to correct me that I'm the rogue pastor leader. And I was like, no, I don't. but yeah, it was old. They, they called it a young adult one they did. at the time, well, but you're my age. And so I was a little bit surprised cause I was like, well, I don't know if they're hey, we, young adults we're holding on to our illusions. Come on, man. Totally. No, we went, it was a great time and we got to time. know each other a little bit. And, uh, since then have had lots and lots of good conversations. Yeah. You have, uh, educationally, you, are, you have a master's of? Uh, interdisciplinary studies. Oh, that's, ama- uh, that's made up, that? Graham. Interdisciplinary humanities, it's even worse. That's not real. <laughs> I know. It you sounds, sent away for that. It sounds like a fake degree, but it's from Trinity. It's history, philosophy, and English. And why were you interested in that? Like, you teach English, but why, yeah. why are you interested in, in the, the, the amalgamation of those three disciplines? Right. Um, well, I, you know, even coming out of, I did a full degree at Bible school, so I've always been interested in theology, and then I went on and did an English and history kind of double major. So really, they all pulled together. And I know philosophy and theology are not the same thing, um, but I have always been interested in the way that uh, you might say the arts or the way we live our lives, books we read, the movies we watch, the songs we listen to, the way we talk, the way we use language, uh, that that uh, can shape the world that we uh, live in and can actually kind of shape reality. We have a tendency to think, oh, reality is just this independent thing that I experience. But it it is actually very shaped by the way you think about the world more than, than I think we realize. So that so my interests have always been in that direction. So this is, this, I mean, this is 
really the chief reason why I wanted to sit down and chat with you. Um, you and I have had lots and lots of conversations regarding how Christians in this mm-hmm. day and age ought to live, uh, to use the language of the scriptures in the world, and not of it. Yeah. So you tell me, what advice would you give? You're, you're a high school teacher. Mm-hmm. So what advice would you give young people in this day and age regarding uh, how they can maintain their Christian commitments and yet live as a full-fledged member of a secular community? Is it possible? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, maybe not as a full-fledged member of secular society. Uh, de- that depends on the society a little bit. And that's maybe one of the points that we're debating in our current culture right now. If you can actually be a faithful and committed Christian and fully embrace what we would call secular life. It may be, maybe it seemed like that was possible in the kind of 50s and 60s, like if that's the golden age of, of Christians feeling like, oh, I could be a functioning Christian and be a you know, respected business person. I could be a media superstar if I wanted. I could, you, know, you could do all kinds of things. Uh, and it feels like mm, maybe that's not on offer anymore in the Why same not? way. Well, just because uh, to be a full-fledged member of the society uh, you may have to give, mm, I don't know, a certain kind of allegiance or at least acknowledge uh, certain ways of thinking uh, about life that, are, that would be in contrast to, to Christian teaching, for sure. So give me one example of that. Uh, so, for example, um, uh, I'll take a non-controversial one for, for the moment, or maybe because there's, there's ones that are in, instantly spring to mind. But uh, you mentioned this weekend uh, that for many young people, the idea of, uh, you know, simply acquiring wealth, right? What, what else are you going to school for? So I'm a high school teacher. So I deal with people all the time. Well, what are we doing this for? Especially in English. Why am I reading Shakespeare? I'm never going to, no one's ever going to ask me in a job interview. Like, why? The, the, by the way, that makes me want to ask people in job interviews about Shakespeare. <laughs> That's right. So from now on, we're going to do that. What's your perspective on <laughs> Hamlet and Ophelia? Explain Macbeth. Yeah. Uh, and what's betrayed in their saying that is that they think, obviously, that education is solely a means to a job. What else would you be doing? Otherwise, I'd be home playing video games all day, I guess. Like, I don't need to study anything. I don't need to learn anything. All, the only reason I'm at school or going to university or doing anything else is apparently just to get hired so I can make more money. Okay, well, is this, a, is this a Christian idea? It is not, actually. Like, we've talked about this before. The, the master gives talents in the parable, not so that the guy can be like, he gave me five talents, I'm a five-talent guy. And that's how the story ends. Yeah. And the guy's like, I got five, that's more than three. And the three guy says, I got more than one, and off they go. That's not how that story goes at all. The, the reason the master gives them those talents is so that they can invest them in the kingdom. And because he's expecting... Th- a return on them and we'll ask for it. So that notion, if you just ask people in the world at large, oh, what are you living for? What are you, what are you being educated for? Well, the answer is usually just to make more money. Well, why do you need more money? Well, more money is more control, more power, more opportunities, more whatever. And Christians stand against this. Like we don't actually think that's what your life is for. What is my life for if, if I'm a Christian? Your life is to... Because I know a lot of Christians, so like I was a adults pastor, and I would say if I went around the room and I asked the question, what are, you, what are you living for? Most of them would be like, yeah, to make the, to make the money. Right. That's the world's answer. Uh, what's my answer to, yeah. to what we're living for? Uh, we live to glorify God who created us, but we are also called, I think, by Jesus to, to have vocations, to participate somehow 
in, what do you want to call it, the kingdom, the harvest, uh, that there is an expectation that the gifts that God has given us, we will give an account for how they were spent, just like the parable with the master and the servants. Mm. So we live our lives in the expectation that one day, just like the master who will come home suddenly mm. and he will return suddenly and we'll be, he'll be like, well, what'd you do? And some of us will say, yeah, I recognized you gave me all these talents. And so I've been, you know, doing everything I can to maximize the return on those gifts for your, well, in the parable for your kingdom, but in the broader meaning of the parable for, for God's kingdom. And I don't want to be one of those people who was given a talent and just said, I, I did nothing. So wh- why is it that Christians, like why the difference between the Christian view that you just described right. and the secular view? Like what's driving, what's driving those respective views? Well, I think if you, if you don't actually believe that there's a God, so you don't believe that this universe is, is going anywhere, really like it's not it's not being governed by any one um you are here what more or less accidentally your parents could have married someone else and you couldn't have existed so if you only all you know is your own experiences and if experiences uh, have a certain kind of payment i mean i can't just go skydiving because i want to i can't just go kayaking down some fabulous river because i want to it costs something i have to have the means to get there, the free time, etc. So in our culture, I think in the absence of belief, largely, people have recognized, oh, well, there's actually nothing else to live for except not stuff necessarily, but experiences. This is what I hear more and more from younger people. If there, you know, if there's an older generation that's like, oh, I need stuff, it's nuanced now. I need stuff that will give me experiences. Yeah, the, I think there's a repudiation of this stuff. Yeah. There's almost this feeling like, well, my parents lived to have the house and the whatever, and that would right. be great. But, you know, experiences are way better. They build memories and develop relationships, and they're, they're way better. So if we're going to spend all of our money on something, we feel far more justified in spending it on whatever, a trip around Europe, right? Right. And every film seems to be about this these days. Yeah. Walter Mitty. Yeah. Did you see that movie? Yeah, the, the short story is much better. Yeah, I bet it is. The movie wasn't that great. <laughs> no. But, you know, the idea that here's a boring guy who's doing a boring job and he right. likes the girl, but he doesn't have the guts. And his problem is that he's not living every moment for what it's worth. And so he should go poor doing it. Right. Because he, he what is he doing? He is a useless person in, in the worldly sense, in, the, in a godless sense, he is a useless person unless he is experiencing Right. That's our definition of what it means to count in Christian thinking. There's no such thing as a useless person. Right. And and he's and he's also very I mean, he's very wasteful because the truth is, from a secular point of view, that he only has like he there's a limited amount of time Mm -hmm. that he has to live. Right. And so every second that he's not enjoying the wind on his face or the the taste of the coffee or the the. The, the sweetness of the apple fritter or whatever, right? whatever existential whoosh yeah. that he wants, that he is, that he's, he's wasting it. Yeah. This yeah. particular moment. Right. So as if the, the God or the replacement God of our culture was, 
you know, sort of the God of Instagram that just wants to fave your incredible moments, right? That's the only thing people are kind of living for. In, an, in the absence of God, you're living for, A, your own experiences. But we see that people, uh, Instagram is a great example. People can't just have those experiences in isolation. They need to be validated by other people, yeah. right? You have to get the likes, right? Or, or else, did it even happen? It's sort of like the like the the old philosophical question the tree that falls in the forest if you if you went mountain climbing but and you, you did. didn't instagram it did you like <laughs> and if you like and who cares if you did because nobody could even like it yeah and that's a good point because you see i mean we see ourselves do that we post it on there's nothing wrong with posting and we're not suggesting posting things on instagram but this it's a cultural you're rolling your eyes i hate instagram i know you do but but there's nothing fundamentally wrong. You want to share, right. share. But the, but the question you're asking is, what is driving, or the point you're making is, what's driving people to want to share it yeah. on Instagram? And the answer is probably some sense of validation that I actually matter, yeah, and that my life matters, and that so I, I need to go on the trips, have the experiences, and then Instagram them, and then get the likes. And so my life yeah. ends up becoming not about the accumulation of maybe more cars or whatever, right? But picture taking of me traveling and having the experiences and people thinking I'm great, a somebody, because right. I've, I've experienced all these things. Right. Well, and think, to return to the parable, what does the master say at the end? What do we do in, in Christian thinking? We do that for the well done, good and faithful servant. That's what validates when, mm. when my master says, you've done it right. You've taken what I've given you and you've, you've invested it and you've made a return on it. So if you absent that father, that master saying, well done, good and faithful servant, well, uh, you still need validation. Yeah. You, you still need to know if you're doing it right. And so if you get home from the end of your hike and you've got 142 likes, you're like, man, I feel awesome. That was really great. So the fundamental difference then between a, a somebody who's, you think, living faithfully in a secular world and somebody who's selling out to said that secular world might, might in one, in this case, not in every case, but in this case, is that one of them sees the praise of God as being the final thing and the other one sees the praise of people yeah as being the final thing right and of course there are other ways there are more you know well-known and and well-traveled paths uh views of sexual ethics uh i I mean i really think euthanasia i remember i i remember i'm old enough to remember when euthanasia was this kind of abstract idea that you know we'd sometimes hear about europeans doing and and now it's very much a reality and yeah, it's driven by the same thing we were just saying. Because once you get too old, when you said earlier, Walter Mitty, you're wasting the precious hours you have. Once you get to the point where you can't do that, a secular culture just basically is going to say, "Well, why, why are you why are you still here? Like, you should just." Well, you don't. There's no more whooshes, right? Right. And there's so no, and, there's no more whooshes, and so you might as well. I mean, call it a day. Really? Like, just declare it a game and be done. And be done because you can't hit anymore. You can't run anymore. You're done. Right. Yeah, and so the quality of life becomes the issue, and because the whooshes are gone, right? Yeah, and that's and that is more tyrannical than than any people complain about. Oh, I don't want God, like you know, coming back as master. The 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 opprobrium of your fellow citizens saying, "Why don't you just go? You're boring and old." That's worse than the worst that God ever seemed. I think to people, yeah, I, it's just you, awful. I don't really call him saying that exactly. Like. <laughs> You always mattered. You could always die with dignity because God gave you inherent validity. But the the death with dignity, people have to say that all the time because we don't actually mean it. We just mean go away. So does it take a lot of courage to live as a Christian in a secular culture these days? I think so. I mean, there's huge pressure, of course, to just, you know, give away uh, some of these things or to find a church 
uh, that will kind of spin you a theology so you can still kind of feel like you have your cake and eat it too, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of that. People who are like, oh, well, the Bible seems to say this, but I will still want to be friends with like the secular world and get invited to those parties. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to be a hermit or a weirdo. So, oh, maybe there's like a loophole um, yeah. where if you only understood the original Greek meaning of this word, you can see that this point doesn't actually matter. So now you can just chill and be friends with the world. There's a movement afoot these days, uh, popularized, I suppose, by Rod Dreher and his Benedict Option, which mm-hmm. is a book that's come out just recently, right. where he has espoused uh, of the idea that uh, Christians need to create very robust communities and basically operate not exclusively, but mostly in those communities when it comes to their education, when it comes to, uh, I mean, he, he believes that those communities ought to be churches. Yeah. Um, and basically o- operate, not, the word hermit's the wrong word. Yeah, yeah. But operate as monks, as Benedict. Yeah. So that, so that our, our, our culture, our communities last while the rest of the world sort of eats itself. And then at some point they'll turn and say, Man, we don't have any answers, they being the, the secular world that's eating mm-hmm. itself. We don't have any answers to this, and the way that we're living is killing each other, and, oh, look at those Christians over there. Right. Now, I have probably not been very faithful in, in recounting that. There's probably lots more nuances that Rod Dreher would want to bring to that. What do you think? Do you think that, that it's a very, it sort of sounds Anabaptist to oh, me. does it ever. That we should retreat yeah. uh, from the culture and, and form really robust, strong communities Right. As almost a prophetic act, where we're 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 preaching to the to the rest of the culture by the way that we're living. Right. What do you think? Yeah. Is this the way forward for Christians? Uh, I think Rod's got a lot of merit. Uh, now he's trying to do this on a macro scale, so he's looking at the history, the fall of the Roman Empire, the that some that Benedict in particular this. One monk, he started 12 communities, and eventually there were, I think he said this the other day, there were 30,000 communities across Europe. Now, people thought these guys were weird and wanted nothing to do with them. But when everything really started to go down in what we might call the Dark Ages, as the Roman Empire really gave up the ghost and there was no more consistency, it was actually the monasteries, the these these communities of strict rule that... Uh, are often these days credited with kind of quote unquote saving Western culture, right? Uh, as as the temptation was to return to a, a barbarian state, that they became lights on the hill where people would say, yeah, my, my life in the city with my pagan friends is a disaster. And I've heard those people will take care of you if mm. you go. So I know that, you know, I was talking to Rogers the other day and he was saying, this is a real tension where you, it sounds like, you're just ditching everyone and saying, you know what? You're all going to hell in a handbasket. So, you know, here's a bigger handbasket. Bye. I'm going the other direction. And that it, it really, it, it sounds paradoxical, but it's an evangelism of retreat is his thinking that at, we need to sustain Christian community. It is susceptible to dissolution if we're not careful about the boundaries. Like if we're totally inattentive to what our kids learn and watch and do and experience, then Christian communities can actually just come apart. So we need to police those boundaries a little bit, but not just to save ourselves so that we can kind of watch as the world burns, but to be lights so that people can come to us and, and learn the truth. Do you think that he's responding to the the challenge that you 
described just a few minutes ago, that the church has largely capitulated to the to the culture. We, I mean, we the word syncretism is widely used yeah. in in religious circles. It means the merging together. You know, this merging together of two belief systems, so that what you have as a result doesn't look like either one that began with. Right. It seems to me that what we've got is kind of a Christian secularism in the world today, especially among young people, where they're looking, as you said, for kind of this magical third way that mm-hmm. will make it easy for them to be able to go to the parties and yet still be a Christian. And yet it doesn't really exist. Ages in the generations past have, have, have tried as well, but not found it. Yeah. Because, you know, uh, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me is the call of Christ. And it means that you have to turn away from your old manner of life and oftentimes a lot of other things. So what am I asking? I'm, a- I'm asking is, do you think that his approach is, is basically saying, look, this isn't, that's not working. Like the way that we're, we're interacting with the culture is not working yeah. in order to, like, we look more like the culture than we look like Christians anymore. And that's not going to help because the culture is just, it's just killing us and themselves and everything. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you. I mean, everyone knows the famous passage about taking care of widows and orphans in James. But there's a there's a full there's a little more to that passage that you know James calls Christians take care of widows and orphans and to keep oneself unpolluted, unstained. True religion is this. True religion is to both take care of people who need it, the weak and impoverished, etc., and to keep yourself unstained by the world. That that's the part that no one says. (laughs) It's like. Oh, is that even in there? They used to. It's right beside it. It's I mean, they used only- to. There used to be a that used to be a major emphasis of the especially evangelical churches, fundamentalist churches. That that was a major emphasis of it. But it's yeah. just not anymore as a rejection of that. I think. Right, and I understand. Right there. Uh, so you you mentioned Anabaptist history. Mennonites. It's true. Were famously separate. Right. I mean, back in the day, not just the military. That's what we're known for. But I mean, being running for office, being a firefighter, was too civic like was too, you know, associated with city life. We were our own people, separated and distinct. And I think there's been a lot of benefit from from stepping away from some of that um, arm's lengthness. But we absolutely have to be careful that, that the pendulum doesn't swing the other way. And, uh, you know, we just forget that, that we're distinctive at all. Mm. So can you give me, as we wrap up here, a yeah. few pieces of advice? Like, give me. I'm a Christian. Yeah. I want to know how to live faithfully in a Christian, in a secular world. Right. Um, you, you have to be careful. You, have, you can't watch everything, I think. You have to really guard your eyes and your, your ears. I don't, that's not to say that there's any rule. It has to, you know, only watch PG-13 movies. You just have to be, you do have to attend to what you put in what you listen to, what you watch, what you view. And, and you can't let people say, oh, everyone's watching I don't know, Game of Thrones. You've got to watch it too. You can say, uh, no, I'm not. You can also say, I'm watching Game of Thrones. I think it's worth it somehow. I think it's, I can make an argument that this is a, a cultural exploration. But you need to draw some lines in your life and be prepared to do so and say, I'm not, I'm not going to participate in certain kinds of these things. You can read about them. That is, is partly my strategy to, to know about things without, but some things are not worth indulging in just to find out what cultural, you know, merit they have. You, you sound so old fashioned. I am so old fashioned in some ways. <laughs> and yet, honestly, I mean, when I was doing some, some research years ago, I was looking into films and how they, the, one of the most su- surprising things I saw was when movies first came out, 
in the early 20th century, there were pastors who were writing in response to the, the advent of the film. Mm. And it was interesting how they, they basically said what you just said. Like, early on, many were like, don't you dare go to the movie houses there of the right. devil. But then that morphed into a more reasoned, look, there's some stuff that they're showing in the movie houses that you probably shouldn't be watching. Mm-hmm. So you need to be really careful about searing your conscience. Yeah. And yet, I actually think that we, in the church largely, have seared our consciences so that we don't actually see the difference anymore between what, what would historically be seen as something that Christians should do and what right. the rest of the world would do. And it's easy to pick on films, but you should, uh, there's books you shouldn't read. Um, there's, there's lots of stuff. There's, there's even modes of living in this world that we should hold at arm's length, right? Like we shouldn't look like the world. We should look different. Amen. Well, thanks a lot, Graham. Uh, I, you have no, I always want to talk more to you. Oh, it'll be interesting. In the future. But cool. thanks a lot for joining us and, uh, we'll see you next time. Great to be here.